Welcome to the Daily Horror Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you daily reviews of currently streaming horror movies for your twisted pleasure. Be aware that these reviews may include mild spoilers. And as always, I hope you enjoy. Today's episode marks the conclusion of our Scream series review with the chat about Wes Craven's Scream 4, which is currently streaming on Hulu and Tubi TV. My guests and I chat about Wes Craven's final film before his untimely death, and our hopes for the future of Scream with the recently announced Scream 5. And returning once again to help me round out this satire slasher series is returning friend of the show, Bernie. Welcome back, brother. Thank you, man. Thank you for having me back on. Of course. Um, this has been quite the journey. Um, this was a first-time journey with Scream for me. Uh, you kind of had seen bits and pieces of the films previously, um, so it's been interesting to kind of just have the contrasting opinions or in terms of like experiences where mine is 100% fresh as much as someone could go into this series fresh. You know what I mean? Like it's a series where it's reputation really kind of precedes it in a lot of ways. But I mean, getting into the sequels, I didn't know what to expect because they're not as established within kind of horror pop culture and all these different things. But I got to say, I was more excited going into the fourth entry in the series more than I would be with most horror movies, mostly just because it's a rarity that a majority of the original cast is coming back, like the core trio of characters. You obviously have Wes Craven coming back, who's been attached to all the films, but also Kevin Williamson is returning, the writer from the first two films. And I think we could both agree that like Scream 3 was definitely weaker. And I think that was mostly due to like his absence because really it's, this is his project as much as it is Wes Craven's. And I think that losing him really took a blow in terms of just the direction that Scream took. So I'm really interested to hear kind of your overall impressions of the fourth film, revisiting it all these years later. Well, you know, for me, again, it was one of those things where I had seen it, but I don't really recall too much of it. Um, so my initial thought was Alison Brie was one of the killers. Um, and then one of those two, you know, nerdy kids was one of the killers, the guy with the, um, what was it, like the it original go Yeah. Um, and then Macaulay Culkin's brother, uh, Charles. Um, so, you know, initially off of that, that's kind of where my focus was on. But the more as, the more that we went through the movie, the more I was realizing the difference in terms of the writing quality between the fourth uh, and the third one, uh, just because there really were a number of people that you could have plausibly expected that to be the ghost face. Whereas in the third one, um, you know, although we had some, you know, thoughts about who it could be, I think it was just poorly written out and played out um, in just in comparison. So this was a little bit more wholesome in that regard. Yeah, definitely. This film, I think, feels very much a reaction to Scream 3 in that it feels much more structured. It feels more coherent in a lot of ways and not so not so many different kind of branching narratives that don't end up amounting to much you know what i mean like the film it has a wide cast again just like in the previous films and yet the narrative just feels a lot stronger in terms of these characters and them kind of dealing with the fact that this film picks up 10 years after scream 3 and the way in which we see that span of time kind of affect all the characters affect the town of woodsboro and dealing with this fact that like, yeah, we had a serial killer come back not once, not twice, but three times, and eventually the fourth time. Um, I thought that that narrative was handled a lot better. Um, something that I didn't realize was that 
Of course, Kevin Williamson was originally uh, came back and he had written a majority of the script. And yet at a certain point, he was in conflict with, once again, Bob and Harvey Weinstein, the producers, and they brought back the writer of three to do rewrites, which I didn't notice. So I think that a problem with the third one is that the writer of the third film, he did most of the writing of the film. And that's why it was so in a lot of ways like painful and it didn't work for me. Whereas in this, Kevin Williamson wrote the entire script and then the guy came in and kind of messed with little bits and pieces of it, which apparently Craven was not a fan of, I understandably so, but I don't think that that writer's kind of like fingerprints were all over it in the way that it was in Scream 3. So this feels more like a Kevin Williamson scream rather than a, I believe the other writer's name was Kruger or something to that extent, but um, it definitely does not feel like the problem that they had with Scream 3. Right. Well, you know, there are obviously some pretty glaring differences between Scream 3 and 4. I thought the opening for Scream 4 was uh, unique, to say the least. Uh, what did you think about that, you know, Russian nesting doll of, of different murders that happened in that? <laughs> That's a really great way to put it. Um, I really liked that intro just because it did catch me off guard because at the beginning, I was like, at first I was a little annoyed just because I thought that that was the true intro, right? These people are playing out in a very familiar scenario. And then it kind of just fell flat a little bit in terms of how it ended. Like, oh, there's two killers again. And that was kind of like the punchline of the first Russian nesting doll, as you put it. Um, but then seeing that, oh, that's actually a fake out. And then we get another two characters that are watching it and they start making fun of the fact that it's a sequel. And then, oh, that's another fake out. And then in the final fake out, like they start making fun of the fact that, yeah, there's an ungodly amount of these sequels now. I think they're up to stab seven. And one of them says like, yeah, stab, the last stab, uh, they went to space or something like that. And it's like, again, this is the franchise not taking itself too seriously in a way that is actually pretty creative. And it's not kind of just, I mean, that was my biggest problem with Scream 3 is that opening, it just feels very generic. There's no real creativity to it. There's nothing about it that is reflecting on itself. It's almost, it's like a slasher intro played very straight. Whereas mm -hmm. in Scream 4, like you said, the Russian nesting doll and kind of infusing that uh, self-referential humor and being like, yeah, there've been a fuck ton of these movies. And even though Scream is only up to its fourth, I think in that instance, they're making fun of things like Friday the 13th, Halloween, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street to a certain extent. Like these franchises that have so many sequels, they've run out of so many different things to do that they're sending motherfuckers to space. Right, right. Well, the thing that I, I kind of started to see, um, and again, we're watching this in 2020, the cast of characters that Wes Craven and their, you know, production guys were able to get on board. I mean, these were pretty, pretty good characters, or at least actors. Um, to these characters, you had, you know, pretty much from top to bottom, you have guys that have served, you know, guys and gals that have gone on and starred in pretty big roles after this. That was very key, just because if you think about the first film, they have Drew Barrymore in there who is advertised as being the star of the film, essentially. And we find out, yeah, she's not. Uh, and so I think that is something that's always been important about Scream to a certain extent is like you have to have a very young and notice and um, familiar cast to a certain extent. Like you had 
obviously in the original film, David Arquette, Courtney Cox, Nev Campbell, and those were people that were very prominent in the 90s and early 2000s. And so they were kind of like the, the starting point for the movie. And I think had they not had a similar approach in getting a cast of young people again, that are, they might not be kind of like Mount Rushmore, uh, big AAA actors, but they are people that are familiar, that have had a level of success that you're at least familiar with them. Like when I saw Adam Brody, who plays one of the cops, I'm not super familiar with his body of work, but I'm familiar with him enough that I was like, oh shit, I know him from somewhere. And then of course you have Anthony Anderson, Emma Roberts, Alison Brie, like you said. Um, and so while I think that their characters are not as developed or as fleshed out, I think as Nev Campbell obviously is, I think that the film does a good enough job of kind of assembling this new cast of characters that it's fun to watch them get killed, you know? No, absolutely. And, you know, the thing that I, I really did enjoy more about this movie than Scream 3, um, I don't know necessarily if there were more kills in this one, but there was definitely a lot more blood. This was, you know, prototypical slasher in terms of the, the blood and guts and stuff like that. I mean, uh, when they went up, um, there was a scene at the very beginning with Jill and Kirby. Um, they were like having a sleepover and then their friend who was living next door, she gets killed by Ghostface. Uh, when Neve Campbell's character runs up the stairs, you literally see that girl's guts on the bed. And it's like, all right, that's a little different than, you know, the, the third one or even the first two. Um, so those kind of little tidbits that gave this at least a little bit more of a boost, um, at least in my mind, but I, I still don't think it, it gets anywhere near the, the impact of the first one. Yeah, I think in that regard, again, it kind of, you have to be cognizant of the fact that this is 10 years after the last film. And again, in the third film, it was so heavily edited and they skewered towards a comedic film rather than a horror film, because again, they didn't want any connection with Columbine. They didn't want any of any sort of connection with that, with young people in the MPAA and the producers were like, we don't want any association with violence, gore, blood, all of those things. And that really shaped Scream 3 in a big way to a detriment, I think. But in terms of this, like it's 10 years later, it's 2011. They have to adjust and we see that, yeah, people are allowed to freely express themselves again in big budget horror movies and expressing themselves in terms of like showing gutted teenagers or more blood and gore um, that's really interesting actually that you mentioned that just you see within not only that span of 10 years the characters themselves grow and mature obviously sydney who is a survivor we see her go from the third film she's very kind of like recluse and is all about security in the fourth film she writes a book and she's famous and it's called out of darkness it's all about her taking her trauma and moving past it and continuing with her life and not letting it be a hindrance. But then you also see in 10 years, the sort of liberties that Wes Craven and Kevin Williamson are given again from Scream 3 to Scream 4. Like, hey, if we want to show a gutted teenager, we're going to do that. We don't have to be, we're not beholden to the MPA to the extent we were in 2000, and 2000 I believe, in for Scream 3. Well, so going back onto it, I mean, you know, I kind of had my, uh, I, I don't know if necessarily idea, but my guess on who the killers were. To, do you remember, you know, in that initial, you know, 30 minutes or whatnot, who you were starting to keen in more so um, who could be a suspect for Ghostface? Yeah, so 
I think that this film, and I'm interested to hear what you think about this too, is that this film does a good job of introducing enough plausible deniability for characters again, or a plausible doubt, in terms of there are enough sketchy characters that it really is difficult, I found, to pinpoint who it could be. There's a lot of suspects, of course, and yet I felt that they did a good enough job of kind of hiding in plain sight, as it were, um, who the actual killer was. Like, I thought it was going to be Jill's boyfriend because he's super sketchy. I thought it was going to, I actually thought it was going to be Judy the cop at one point who is obsessed with Dewey and who hates Gale and kind of always seems to be in the wrong place at the wrong time or she's just very suspicious like. Um, what did you think though? Did you think that they did a good job of placing enough plausible deniability on these characters? Absolutely. I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head for the two other like really viable suspects. I never really was gearing towards Jill. And again, I've seen, I saw this way back when, so obviously I need to check uh, my memory a little bit, but um, they just did enough, I think, with some of these characters where you weren't around all of them at the same time, right? So you had Kirby, uh, Hayden Penetera's character, Kirby Reed, off screen for a certain amount of time. You had uh, Rory Culkin's character off screen for a number of times. So, like, you started to think about who it could be. Um, but the big thing for me was, and again, I don't know if this is necessarily, um, you know, some sort of a, a narrative that they were trying to build in terms of kind of. Uh, you know, Dewey's under understudy, but that female cop that was his deputy, she was calling out to the police and she was saying, like, when they found um, Jill Roberts's mom, uh, Sid Aunt, I believe it was, yeah. um, she was saying that there wasn't anyone in the house. Maybe I misunderstood that, but when I heard that and then uh, Sydney obviously fled away in that car, I instantly was like, well, why isn't anyone starting to point their finger at this girl? Like, obviously, this is not normal protocol in whatever sense. Um, but again, towards the end, when you know, it took 48 minutes for the police to get there, I was like, okay, it's probably not police-related. Um, Got to be one of those characters that's in that, um, that townhouse at the end, essentially. That would have been a really good twist, I think. And I guess, like, I liked, we'll get into the twist for this film later, but that would have been a really great twist because it's one of the few p character types that has not ended up being a killer yet, from Scream 1 to Scream 3. And in Scream 3, um, that cop that I believe he's played by Patrick Dempsey, he is made up to be a suspect, and yet he doesn't end up being the killer, obviously. It ends up being uh, Sidney's half-brother. But that would have been a really interesting kind of angle to take and to kind of just morph this idea of like introducing a new uh, slasher rule. Because again, that's always, the, these films have always been beholden to this idea of like the rules and kind of right. those have been evolving and changing from the original to sequel to sequel to sequel. But- Green five take notes. Yeah, exactly. Um, that, I mean, that's a great point. That has to be at the foundation of Scream five, right? And it has to, and that will in a lot of ways kind of dictate the different paths that Scream five takes. Um, but more on that in a little bit. Um, but I was really interested. I thought that Scream 4 was very much a remake of the original. It's very much a remake that has been tweaked in a certain amount of ways, but I'm curious how you found the approach to a remake, right? Because it kind of is making fun of this idea that like, eventually when slashers or horror movies run out of ideas, oh, what's the best way to reboot something? Shit, just remake it. 
And this right. very much feels like Wes Craven and Kevin Williamson kind of addressing that uh, trend within horror and slashers. How do you think they did, though, with this uh, remake? Do you think that it felt fresh and, fresh and fun enough? Or could they have used a little more work in kind of nailing that angle that they were going for? Um, You know, on, on second thought of it, I think they did they did a really good job in terms of recreating Scream 1, right? Um, you can't, I don't think you can best the original, or at least there's a few of those scenarios or situations where that does occur. But now that I think of it, I mean, you know, the idea basically that Charlie, and I'm forgetting his friend um, who is recording it, they're basically the nerdy version of Jamie Kennedy's character, yeah. you know, different Charlie and Trevor, Charlie and Trevor. There we go. Um, you have this idea that Randy at the beginning, if I, re if I recall correctly, was into Sydney and you have, you know, this love connection, kind of an idea or narrative building between Charlie and Kirby Reed. Then you start to see some of those parallels that they're trying to bring up. Um, but again, I I like the execution of it. Um, I, I did like the blood and guts and all that stuff, but uh, it's still, you know, I would put it probably as the third best Scream movie overall from the four ones that we've seen so far. What about you? Yeah, also, I mean, I was going to bring up like rankings, but um, for me, I think I would definitely agree. I would say for me, it's definitely obviously the original uh, and then Scream 2, which... Just ever, the more I think about Scream 2, the more I'm really impressed by the fact they capitalized on that idea of bigger, bloodier, and better. Not better necessarily in terms of a final product, but just in terms of like those very specific goals that they have in mind for like the slasher rules that are dictating the whole kind of structure of the film. In that regard, it's definitely bigger, bloodier, and better. And I think that that is capitalized on in a way that is really impressive given how since it's a horror comedy in a lot of ways, the inclination might be like, oh, let's lean a lot more into the humor to draw in more people. And yet right. the second one doesn't do that. The second one kind of stays true to that drive. It's got bigger stakes, bigger set pieces, bigger twist. But I mean, nothing beats the original. But yeah, I would say Scream 1, Scream 2, definitely Scream 4, um, because it's a film that I think doesn't get enough credit for as good of a remake of the original. And yet... Again, it doesn't kind of like veer too hard into one camp. It kind of finds that happy modern medium between horror and comedy. Um, and then, yeah, Scream, Scream 3, Scream 3 is coming in dead last because, uh, and it's, it's funny after you and I had this conversation about Scream 3 and I was like, yeah, not a fan of that. And you basically said the same thing on Twitter, I guess, within the last week or so, they had the anniversary of the movie. And there's all these people saying like, oh, this film doesn't get enough respect. This is a lot of fun. I really enjoy this. It's one of my favorites. And I was like, everybody's entitled to their opinion, but I just do not see it. I do no, not the, see it. Not everyone's entitled to their opinion. <laughs> Ron James deserves respect. Scream 3 does not deserve any fucking respect. They're right there. Um, to that point, though, um, you know, you were talking about Scream 2 took the blood and guts to the next level. Now that I think of it, I wonder what's actually bloodier, Scream 2 or Scream 4? Because you have the police officer scene where, like, Anthony Anderson gets stabbed in the in the forehead. Yeah. He's, like, 
you know, it's obviously very bloody, but at the same time, like, it's relatively humorous. He's punching the air as, like, Ghostface is behind And then his last phrase is, fuck Bruce Willis, because him and Adam Brody were having a conversation yeah. about him. <laughs> or, like, um, what was that kid's name? Trevor? Yeah. Was it right? Yeah, so Trevor gets stabbed, um, and beforehand, um, Charlie, when they're having, like, some sort of, like, a movie, uh, like, after-school group or something like that, horror group, um, they're, like, they're explaining the new rules, basically, and one of them was, you can't get killed if you're gay. Right. He's getting yeah. stabbed, like, I'm gay, does that save me? And the guy stabs him, so, like, those moments, right, like, yeah, those are actually funny moments that you glad, but like that was just completely missing from Scream Three in terms of like having that component to being gory, but also having like a humor side. It was a, a fucking disaster in my opinion. But yeah, I mean, also Scream Three, which I think Scream Four kind of even just highlights how poorly of a job it was done in Scream Three is that. Scream 3 feels like it's setting up gags for its humor. Whereas in Scream 4, there's humor in a lot of the different bits, like whether it's Anthony Anderson kind of blindly punching, saying fuck Bruce Willis, or you have, uh, like you said, Trevor is like, wait, I'm gay. Does that, does that change your mind? Kind of like those are moments that are very much the foundation. They're not the foundation. They're kind of just, they're sprinkled on top of these very horror-centric moments that horror fans want and love. And it's these like gory, bloody kills like we talked about. And yet it doesn't feel like one overpowers the other. Rather, they both kind of complement one another. Um, Scream 4 also, I like the humor more because again, the humor doesn't feel single serving, right? It doesn't feel like this is just something that's being introduced here that has nothing to do with anything that's happening. And it just is there to make you laugh. Whereas in Scream 4, like the film opens with those two girls talking about like, torture porn like soft four isn't even scary like the humor is making fun of horror movies and the horror genre and that's at the core of what screams humor is supposed to be about and just to see that grow from the first movie into the fourth film some i think it's 26 years later or something like that is or that actually that would be scream five scream five would be 26 years but it's um 15 years i believe from scream to scream four but Again, it just shows like in returning to the roots, it doesn't get too, too crazy with the twists and all these things, but it's just familiar enough. And there's enough kind of new avenues that they take it that it just it feels very refreshing in a way that Scream 3 just was not. Um, and whether that be them making fun of all the sequels or one of them is joking like, oh, the social media killer, it's like the Facebook killer. And she's like, actually, it would be the Twitter killer now. Like. Just little moments like that, at least that gag, that joke, is not just like a single serving gag that came out of nowhere, right? It's tied into the fact that Ghostface is texting them now instead of calling them because, hey, it's 2011. Nobody likes talking on the phone, even less so now in 2020. But it's just the idea that like the film is acknowledging, hey, there's a history. There's been this passage of time. We can't just kind of do what we did in Scream 1, 2, or 3. We can do something similar but it has to be reflective in a way that just kind of feels organic. Absolutely not. There was a moment where I thought they were taking the piss a little bit with how they were talking about this movie being meta and literally saying it over and over. But, you know, going towards the end now, I mean, 
what what was your thought on the ending in that you know kind of a flip of the script that it's that the one of the killers at least is Sydney's niece uh, Jill Roberts. So I liked it, and again, it's because for me at least, I'm always partial to twist endings that you can't see coming, right? Right. She is never really a suspect throughout the movie. And I don't think that, I mean, I might be mistaken, but I don't remember there being any moments that were like, oh, she could very well be one of the suspect, killer suspects. Um, And so I'm always a fan of those twist endings that you can't see coming just because I like to be surprised. I feel like a majority of the time when you watch a whodunit, you pretty much know before the big reveal, right? There's been enough evidence where it's like, yeah, I didn't think it necessarily was going to specifically be them, but there was enough evidence that they were at least in the running for a potential suspect. Um, I also really like Jill Roberts. I think that, um, or rather Emma Roberts, excuse me. I really like her character in this and how, how batshit narcissistic and insane she is and kind of just seeing her manipulating Rory Culkin's character, Charlie Walker, who is essentially, like you said, a new Randy. He's Randy, uh, 2.0 it's just it's very again kind of like sadistic and it's reminiscent of Stu and Billy Loomis from the original film again like all right man hey cut me man and then of course I think you cut me too deep I'm getting woozy here like it's basically a remake of that except she fucking kills him yeah she stabbed him in the heart (laughs) yeah she stabbed him in the heart he's like don't go too deep and then it was just right in the fucking heart um and then of course she gives the 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 fight club beat down to herself where she does basically what Edward Norton does in fight club where she beats the fuck out of herself. She throws herself through a glass table and then stabs herself. Like that whole character arc of her setting it up to look like a victim. I don't know, man. I really like that part just because of how twisted it is and how well she sells that. What did you think though of the uh, twist? I mean, so I mentioned this to you before. I wasn't the biggest fan of this movie after watching it. Um, you know, now that I had a little bit of time to think about it, it's like it's growing a little bit more on me. The first, you know, this movie is like an hour and a half or something like that. The first like 60, 70 minutes, I'm not the biggest fan of. And then that last 20, 30 minutes where we realize that it's Jill and uh, and Charlie and like how that, that kind of situation evolves. Um, that's one of the... I mean, that's pretty much up there with the first uh, surprise of Billy and um, I forget that other guy's name now, but um, Stu. Thank you. Um, I think the thing that I love the most about this movie is that I genuinely like Charlie's character from the beginning and I kind of linked him up with Randy. So the fact that they were able to use that leverage and I, you know, maybe I might be the only person that kind of saw that, but um I don't know. It was just, it, it kind of, it fucked me up a little bit when he ended up killing Hayden Panatera because you saw, oh, I messed that up. No, you didn't mess it up, but she's not necessarily, this is a fan theory. So you're not wrong, but it's never confirmed that she died. She's the only, she's the only one that is not confirmed as being killed along with the other ones. Uh, because in the last scene, she's still moving, I guess. And so this is like a fan theory that they're going to bring her back in Scream 5. That's a fan theory, though. That's not confirmed. But Didn't Dewey mention to, to Emma Roberts' character, Jill Roberts, when she's in the hospital, like about people being dead? The I other, I'm pretty sure it was the other kids. 
Because I'm oh, pretty sure, yeah, because I'm pretty sure they show her still moving, and yet it just cuts away. It never, it's never confirmed. That's why some people are like, hmm, maybe they're gonna bring her back. Because she's a, would be, she's an awesome character. She is. I mean, again, there weren't any characters that were deliberately like that they were trying to make likable that you really like. Uh, I never liked uh, Jill's ex-boyfriend. Everybody liked him. Other than that, I mean, everybody else was either goofy or somewhat likable, right? Um, so to that effect, again, they did a really good job um, producing this and, and getting the right uh, actors for those roles. Um, but I will say this, I mean, uh, my the thing that messed me up the most in this movie was the way that uh, Jill's mom got killed, which... Mm-hmm. Really quick side note: Did we ever know that Sydney's mom had a sister? I never heard of this. I person. do not remember it being mentioned. I don't. Okay, but yeah, I mean that that's was a, a great sm- kill though. That was <laughs> With a that mail slot. It was just so brutal, and then you just see the knife just get retracted real quick. <laughs> so I that was probably one of the highlights of this movie for me. What was kind of the the kill that stuck out for you? Oh man, like you said, there's a lot of great gore in this it's probably i mean this is not one of the gory moments but it was like i love the scene of sydney kicking the shit out of ghostface again ghostface is not as much of a klutz this time but it's just i love this idea that like yeah it's a slasher villain but he's a person at the end of the day and he can get fucked up and seeing sydney not play it doesn't really delve too much into sydney's survivor complex as it does in the third film and yet the fact that she's able to kick his ass and yeah, she's terrified of him, but like she's the one that charges into um, Emma Roberts' friend's house across the street. And she's like, fuck it, I'm gonna run in there and help. And so like her character just being a complete badass, I love. But then Allison Brie going for a swan dive off of that uh, parking garage, that's a pretty that's a pretty brutal moment. Um, and of course, Anthony Anderson getting stabbed in the forehead. Um, that actually, <laughs> Wes Craven, funnily enough, Wes Craven included that moment because he saw that in a documentary. This idea that, like, you remember that show that was on, like, some white trash network, like Spike TV or something, that show that highlighted deaths? It was, like, insane deaths or crazy ways that people survived or something insane like that where people had these horrific injuries. But there was one episode of that where a guy somehow get, somehow you get stabbed in the face and then he was able to walk into the ER. And so, like, that was a real thing that happened. And he decided, like, fuck it, I'm going to put that in my movie. That, I mean, that's some heavy research to, to find yeah. that <laughs> But, uh, yeah, I mean, that or, I mean, Rory Culkin's death is pretty brutal. Especially after he's about to, like, quote unquote, get the girl. And then he ends up being the killer and stabs her and potentially kills her. And then just seeing him get killed in this most brutal way after it's like, oh no, dude, your real girlfriend or real partner? Like, nah, man, you're just, everybody loves a single victim. Yeah, I didn't even think of that. His character's arc, he was just trying to get with Kirby and then he hooks up with Jill for half a second and then she stabs him. Well, I mean, they were dating, I think, I don't know if dating's the right word, but they were in that love pact for what they were doing. I never thought I'd see someone with a worse sex life than me, but I'm... I'm... <laughs> hey, man, you're still alive, at least. He's fucking dead. 
got to look at the positives. But uh, what did you think of the film's use of technology, right? Because technology has always been at the core of the Scream movies, right? It's been calling on the phone. Oh, this is a big issue. There's no caller ID. How do you know who's actually calling? And then we even had, like, in the first film, you could go on the computer and type in 911 on your modem router and it would call the police, apparently. But Or and then we have, like, the voice changers that were mm-hmm. in uh, 2 and 3. And we had, like, cell phones. We had caller ID. And now in Scream 4, we have the introduction of texting, which was not in any of the other films. And then we also have essentially live streaming where that kid Trevor has the headset that has the camera that's recording live for everybody. And they even incorporate like the internet. Like Gail is trying to get the scoop for what's happening. And it's like, yeah, that was on the internet an hour ago. What are you talking about? Like at one point a kid makes fun of her for that. So I'm kind of curious, like, what did you think of the role that technology played in the movie and how it has advanced since the previous one, 11 years later. I mean, you can, de- we're watching this in 2020. So again, it's it's fun seeing the blueberries or whatever they're called, blackberries uh, that people were, the flip phones with the, you know, I forget what half of that stuff. It's been was. so long, we don't even remember that analog nonsense. Right, <laughs> yeah. Um, so it was interesting seeing that. I thought the fact that you saw that the kids had a better hold of technology versus the adults. I thought that was very interesting. And again, you know, got to tip the cap off to the writer and and Wes Craven for this, for, again, this is another example of, you know, the quality that you get when you hire a real writer. That's worth the salt in that sense. Um, But no, I, I, I really liked it. I thought that it moved the, helped move the narrative along. Uh, I'm going to be interested in seeing how they're able to incorporate, you know, like a find my iPhone or something like that in this five. And that ends up in the closet where the, you know, ghost face killer is. Um, but it's, it's moving along in a progression that's I think palpable or at least, you know, kosher in that sense. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a great uh, transition. If we want to get into uh scream five in the future of scream, I mean, that is at the core of what I want them to make sure they utilize properly in Scream 5 is this idea that like you can't lose sight of the fact how big of a role technology plays in that and the technology has to be incorporated into the film to such a degree that it gives Ghostface the platform that he needs to intimidate threaten and eventually murder these people and yet the film is not like super concerned with focusing on technology you know what I mean like it's always kind of felt very organic to the story, like they mention it, they give the audience an example, but then it's never like, okay, we're gonna spend 15 minutes of exposition on this technology or something like that. It's always been, hey, this is what Ghostface is doing. Is there a way for us to use this technology against Ghostface? Like we see that in Scream 3, where Gale starts using the cameras, but then Ghostface starts using them against other characters as well. But here's what we know kind of for Scream 5 and the future of Scream. It's already been pushed because of COVID, apparently. The film was slated for an earlier release, but it's been pushed to January 14th, 2022. It's being directed by Matt Benatelli Olpin and Tyler Gillett, who were the directors behind last uh, 2019's film, Ready or Not. Did you see that movie? I have not, no. Okay, Did you? we should, yeah, we should definitely do a review on that because that's a really, really fun um, horror comedy. But um, so those two are fantastic. I think they are really great at taking simple concepts and punching them up to a degree that 
makes them fun, dark, and humorous, which, I mean, based off of Ready or Not, I can't imagine a better duo to do Scream and finding that core balance between horror and comedy, which is at the root of Scream. And it, I mean, that is what Scream is. So in that sense, like, I don't know who's writing it, but I am very excited the fact that just those two are the directors. So it looks like the screenplay is being written by a gentleman named named James Vanderbilt. Uh, he was one of the writers of Zodiac. Which oh, I'm, shit. Um, yeah. Um, he has a couple other movies, uh, most notably White House Down, which I know we all think is a, a treasure. Um, but, I mean, it'll be interesting because, again, you talk about continuity. I mean we are going from a Wes Craven and Kevin Williamson-led movie to now, again, like you said, you have a completely new director because R.I.P. to Mr. Craven. Uh, and then Kevin Williamson obviously isn't reprising his role as the head writer. So um, it will definitely be interesting to see how they can carry on that legacy in some kind of a productive way. Yeah, and you know, it's one of those things where somebody that's coming in to take over a project of somebody that was involved in all of the films that came before it, it's a very rare predicament because it is one of the, probably the only slasher franchise where a singular person was at the helm of directing for throughout. Like obviously for all of these slasher franchises that go on for five, 10, and sometimes 12 different films in a series. Yeah, there's the original director who originated the genre but that's often a case where they didn't really know what they had until it was out. And they it's basically like lightning in a bottle, right? It's kind of like most of those people that started those original series, they were kids that barely made had any money and wanted to make a movie as quickly and as cheaply as possible. And then, of course, it blew up into this thing that is now revered as being a pillar of a genre. And so a majority of those people did not return to do the sequels. They didn't do the second, the third, or however many sequels. They just did not do it. They moved on to other things. That's not the case with Wes Craven. Wes Craven was at the helm of every single one of these movies. So the idea that somebody else could ever come in and do a movie like this, obviously there's gonna be a lot of pressure, but also a lot of skepticism. This idea, or people that are gonna be skeptical about this. And it's like, how do you entice the core cast from the original film to show up for this. Because let's be honest, how many of us are gonna have confidence in a reboot if nobody from the original film, yeah, exactly, zero. You're motioning zero to me through Zoom. Like nobody would have confidence in this because yeah, Scream has not had a film since 2011, but there has been a TV show. I don't know anything about the show. I can't speak to its quality. And yet there hasn't been a Scream movie in nine plus years or something like that. Um, so what I did notice, and you made a really good point about this earlier, is that they look for young kids to get into these roles or not necessarily young kids, but young actors that might not have you know, too much star power, but they're kind of getting into it. I haven't heard of too, like uh, outside of the, the core of Neve, uh, Neve Campbell, David Arquette and Courtney Cox, there's Jenna Ortega, Jack Quaid, Melissa Barrera, Dylan Minnette, and then a kid named Mason Gooding. And I think I've seen Dylan Minnette and Mason Gooding um, in like, a, I don't know, maybe a Disney movie or something like 10 years ago, but um, they don't necessarily pop off as people that have been in 
Um, you know, like an Allison Brie, for instance, who was in Mad Men before she made it onto Scream 4. Like, I don't recall these guys being in any kind of shows like that. So it'll be interesting to see how they pop in. Yeah. So Jack Quaid, I know because he's in that series, The Boys, that's on Amazon Prime, which is really good. Um, I am not familiar with the other people, like you said, but I'm sure it's an instance where if I saw their faces, I would at least have that frame of reference like, oh, I recognize them. I don't know from where. But at least I'm familiar with them. And I think that this is part of what makes Scream so exciting in that everybody is fair game, right? Other than, well, I was about to say other than the core trio, but who the hell knows? This might be the last Scream or maybe this is the last one that they want to be a part of. Because, I mean, I can't imagine that they're going to do many more of these of the core trio. They could. This could be the birth of a whole new string of Scream movies. That doesn't right. mean Nev Campbell, Courtney Cox, and David Arquette are all going to be like, yeah, I'm going to do these for the next 10 years. Like, I don't see that being very realistic. So this idea they're going to introduce a new crop of young people that are recognizable, but they're not exactly AAA stars. There's enough there that it's like, yeah, hey, you recognize this person? They could be the next Sidney Prescott or they could just get killed in the next five minutes. But actually in an interview today, I read that there was an interview with uh, Nev Campbell on some Canadian show where they were asking like, how did these directors convince you to come back to this slasher series and this franchise that you started and but why would you come back after all these years and she said basically that the duo wrote her a letter that just kind of talked about their love of Wes Craven and how Wes Craven making Scream and all of his other movies like inspired them to make horror movies and I mean yeah money might be a factor in it too but I just thought that that was really interesting in that this actor who I'm sure she's had other Scream projects pitched to her. I'm sure, I mean, they had a TV series on MTV for Scream for like three or four years, I think. And the idea that they never reached out to her for a cameo is not realistic. Like they definitely reached out to her at some point, but she clearly said no for to the best of my uh, knowledge about the show that she was not in. So it's one of those things where it makes me very excited for this project in a way I wouldn't normally be just because they're rebooting a slasher franchise. I think it it's kind of similar to the 2018 reboot of um, Halloween, the, se- the direct sequel to the original film. Yeah, I would end up go seeing it anyways because I love horror and I love slashers and I love Halloween, but I was even more excited because the original director was producing, obviously, but also Jamie Lee Curtis was returning as one in a pivotal role. It wasn't just a cameo. So when you get the original actress or actor from a film to be in the reboot or the uh, revitalization of a series, yeah, you're going to put asses into seats. And that's what makes me so excited for Scream 5 and the future of Scream. I'll just say this, man. Like, I, I love Neve Campbell, and I understand that, you know, this might have been an interesting script. Make wild things too, like make three to tango, four to tango. I guess, like do do something else. Come on, we've 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 gone over this. A you and too. I are going to greatly differ on that, and we're lucky it's on Zoom, or you and I might come to blows. But um, in terms of like the direction that they could potentially take a Scream Five, if even if you're not excited about it, what is a direction that you think they could take this in that would make you excited for it again? Not necessarily saying that you need to be sold on Scream 6, 7, 8 to the point where Ghostface goes to the moon, but what is a direction that they could take Scream 5 that would kind of be true to the core identity and idea of Scream, 
and yet evolve on it in a way that feels transformative enough that it justifies a reboot. So there's two different ghost faces that are not working together, one of which is Neve Campbell, who's completely lost it. She ends up killing Gale, Dewey kills Neve, and then the other ghost face kills Dewey. And then I'm like, okay, not now, because now, now like we've taken out the core cast, we've seen the demise of Sydney, and now we're going into maybe instead of you know Scream is about the Sydney Prescott experience, or I guess in Scream Four it was more about um, what was her name uh, Jill's experience, uh, her niece. Uh, maybe the next one is more just about the killer and why he's finding ways to kill rather than trying to like morph it into I'm trying to recreate the Woodsboro killings in that sense. First off, you just made me super anxious that they're bringing back the core trio just to kill them in the first 15 minutes without a cold open, which I fucking would absolutely hate. So that shit better not happen. But I like the idea of two competing ghost faces, right? A ghost face that the two ghost faces that are so tied up in getting that stardom and that fame that all of the ghost face want to a certain extent, that attention, that it has them competing and they end up kind of like taking credit for one another's work and competing. I think that that would be really interesting. And in terms of like incorporating technology into it again, because it is Scream, technology plays a big subtle role in those movies. I think that getting back into the live stream angle would be really interesting. Like, especially in 2020, Twitch streaming, whether it be video games or like YouTuber culture and all these things. I think that would be really interesting to take this angle where it's like people are going to tune in to watch horrifying and terrible things. I don't know necessarily if it needs to be to the extreme where it's like, hey, let's watch people murder people for real. But this idea that like Ghostface keeps popping up on these services and enacting murders that end up being real murders that might be an interesting angle that they could run with and they would it would take someone a lot smarter than me to write in an angle that is believable and yet very entertaining on that front um, to make that work. But I think that that would be a really interesting angle. And I mean, in terms of technology and the social aspect, that to me seems like the most realistic and the most potential for Scream 5 and kind of like evolving on the core concept of the original film and all the sequels that went along with it. So, I mean, you know, for all our, for all the listeners for this podcast, I mean, you know, keep, you know, buckle up in that sense. In about two and a half years, you're going to see the Scream 5 podcast. Absolutely, man. I'm def I'll definitely have you back on for Scream 5. And if they eventually blow up enough to do Scream 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 to Scream 100, I'll keep dragging you back for them. But you can find yeah, we can find someone to replace me at that. Okay. Okay. <laughs> you could tap out whenever you want, man. But, uh. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. This is part of what I really love about kind of getting more like past 100 episodes now. I'm getting more comfortable in terms of just like having more and more guests on, not just me kind of rambling into a blank screen uh, for those solo episodes I do. But like, again, there's so many horror movies, it's impossible to ever cover everything. And in terms of just like getting an opportunity to approach a series or a single movie that I've never seen before that you broached, you were like, hey, let's do a Scream series review. And I was like, oh shit, I haven't seen Scream at all. And it's just one of the things that I'm really, really enjoying the most about doing this and that, hey man, have people on whether I like the movie more or they like the movie more, like we have a good conversation about it uh, no matter which way we feel about it. So 
again, it's always a pleasure having you on. And uh, I plan on having you on in the future for more series review, more solo reviews. I really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, again, you're, you're kicking ass and taking names. So I'm uh, looking forward to some of your next podcast, man. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Daily Horror Habit on your preferred streaming service and follow at Daily Horror Habit on Instagram and at Daily Horror Pod on Twitter.